Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. There are external and even internal influences that can impact units of the national park system. Urban sprawl can strangle parks and their natural resources. Wildfires can sweep across boundaries and into parks. Rivers can flood and wash out trails and roads, as we saw last June at Yellowstone National Park. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Today we're going to be talking about looming threats to Yellowstone and Cape Hatteras National Seashore. In the case of Yellowstone, it's the threat of a gold mine proposed to be sunk into a mountain towering over the park's northern entrance at Mammoth Hot Springs. At Cape Hatteras, it's the Atlantic Ocean and the natural dynamics of barrier islands, which were not designed by nature to remain in one place. Instead, they shift as the ocean erodes beaches and moves sand about. In both of these cases, there are solutions in sight. The question is whether they'll succeed. Now, before we get started, I conducted these interviews via normal phone lines and my voice has been struggling thanks to the arrival of spring pollens and molds, and I ask for your understanding and forgiveness for the less than ideal quality. We'll be back in a minute to discuss the latest gold mine threatening Yellowstone. Stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Do you work or volunteer for the National Park Service? Are you retired from the Department of the Interior? Learn how you could earn $250 by joining Interior Federal Credit Union and opening up a new credit card. Visit their website for membership details and how to join. Federally insured by NCUA. Nearly 30 years ago, while working for the Associated Press in Wyoming, I was given a tour of the New World Mine that Crown Butte Mines was planning to develop in the mountains above Cook City, Montana, just about four miles beyond Yellowstone's northeast entrance. It was going to be a sprawling operation in the Custer Gallatin National Forest to pull gold, silver, and copper out of the mountains. But it spurred a pitched battle with environmentalists because of its proximity to Yellowstone and fears that it would send mine pollution cascading down the Soda Butte Creek drainage and into the national park. The threat was stopped in 1996 when the Clinton administration brokered a deal to buy out Crown Butte for $65 million, of which $22.5 million would be held in reserve to pay for the cleanup of historic mining wastes. Today, talk of burrowing a mine into Crevice Mountain above Yellowstone's north entrance at Mammoth Hot Springs has prompted the Greater Yellowstone Coalition to launch a grassroots campaign to raise $6.25 million by October 1st to buy out the company that owns the mining rights, Crevice Mountain Mine. To learn more about the mine project and the effort to stop it, I reached out to Scott Christensen, the executive director of the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. So, um, congrats 
on this campaign. Hope it's successful. I'm curious, how far along is the proposed mine? So they, um, over the last about 11 years, they have you know, secured a footprint of almost 1,400 acres on the mountain. Um, you know, through purchasing mineral rights, leasing private land, taking claims, um, and they, you know, they've secured um, quite a bit of proprietary, you know, exploratory drilling data, and you know, developed their own set of mine plans. They also have secured a permit from the state of Montana to mine. So they. Um, they're fairly far along in the process. You know, they haven't, you know, been up there moving dirt around per se, but they're, you know, they've lined up the the pieces they need to you know, make a take a shot at it. Do you have any knowledge of the um, prospect? Well, so what we know is that you know, mining has taken place going back to the 1860s right next door in the small town of Jardine. And that was, that area was mined, you know, up through the nineties. And so there was historically there, you know, there's a, is a proven resource there. Um, the company that um, is involved with this proposal is run by one of the, you know, the former employees of the last company to mine in Jardine. And so, you know, he's spent decades compiling information and investigating the potential for mining under Crevice Mountain. You know, he's convinced that the resources there, um, there have been attempts to mine on Crevice Mountain in the past. Um, there's a there's a very, very high likelihood that there is a, a valuable mineral resource under the mountain just based on what's taken place very in very close proximity and all the work that's been done there in the past. So it's it's a threat that we take, you know, obviously really seriously. Yeah. Is it primarily gold or silver or both? Gold. Yeah, it's primarily gold. And you have no idea how much gold per ton you're looking at? You know, the, the, the project or the mining company has grown around all sorts of different numbers. I don't, at my fingertips, I don't know. I, I, you know, I can't recall exactly what they have stated, but they... You know, they, the way that they talk about it is, is that, you know, there's a resource there worth in the hundreds of millions of dollars is their um, perspective on it. Which kind of makes you wonder why they would sell for six. Yeah, so I, I this is our experience with them is that, um, you know, this has been a, a decades-long project that this person, Michael Werner, um, head of the company, has been – you know, fixated on, and it's taken him many years to get himself into a place, like the company into a place where they could um, take a shot at mining this, and, you know, they have invested millions of dollars in the effort to date um, uh -huh. in securing their land, land position and all of that, and part of the reason for us intervening when we did and approaching them about a buyout was to come in at a point where it hadn't gotten too far down the tracks and too much investment hadn't been put into it so that it was within the realm of possibility for us to even take a run at. And I think that's the, 
one of the tricks with these mining proposals in the West is that they seem they seem improbable for a long time until they don't. And then at that point, the company involved has typically invested so much that they are they're hell bent on moving forward. And uh, you know, there's really no other option for them. They have to recoup their money and somehow. And so, you know, as they were moving along with this project, we felt urgency for two reasons. One, we were running out of strategies to stop them because most of the proposal is on private lands. We just had limited options for stopping it. Huh. And two, we needed to come in at a time before they had invested, you know, to a point where it was just you know, not feasible for us to compete with, um, you know, the, the idea of moving forward with it. And so, you know, they, I will say that the company is, believes wholeheartedly that they can mine on the boundary of the park without making a mess. You know, we, of course, disagree with that view. But um, they also understand that it is the border of Yellowstone and that there are many other values and interests in play, too. And so I think for them it came down to, a, you know, a calculation of, you know, how painful is this going to be, how difficult is this going to be versus, you know, how, you know, how tenable is another another path or another offer here. So, you know, it's a... I feel like we got in at the right time to be able to get into the batter's box and take a swing at this. Had it gotten further down the track, I think it would have been impossible to you know, try and stop. Yeah, a lot of times you hear about these small companies coming in and finding a, a reasonable claim, and then they they sell it off to a major um, mining company. Mm -hmm. um, kind of surprised mm -hmm. that's not the, the strategy they're playing now if they're really hundreds of millions of dollars of ore there. I think they, you know, I think part of it is the personality of the company. I think this guy has a real attachment to the location and the place and, you know, him spending a good chunk of his career mining in Jardine next door, he's always had his eye on Crevice Mountain. And so I think for him, it's fairly personal. He's like, yeah, I, w I want to be the one who mines that resource. So it's, it's, just, it's just a little different dynamic, but you're correct. You know, nine times out of ten, those junior mining companies are trying to make a project look sexy enough, you know, for a bigger entity to come along and scoop it up. Is the primary threat uh, visibility and, and habitat disruption? Yeah, it, it, it's just based on the location. It's, you know, square in the middle of occupied grizzly bear habitat. It's right in the middle of the northern range elk herd migration corridor. You know, it's got bighorn sheep and mule deer moving across it. Um, it's within the uh, by the northern bison tolerance zone. It, um, you know, has everything wildlife-wise that Yellowstone has. And so it's just the proximity is so close. In fact, some of the lands in play here literally touch the boundary of the park. Um, and then it, um, it also sits on the south flank of Crevice Mountain, and is perched directly above the Yellowstone River, right at the bottom of the Black Canyon of the Yellowstone. And so, of course, you know, if you start poking holes in a mountainside right above the Yellowstone River, there's a very high likelihood that drainage is going to occur, you know, down into um, 
into the Yellowstone River. And so water quality is also a huge concern we have. Um, and then, of course, visibility. You know, if you're standing in Gardner looking at the Roosevelt Arch, if you look just up and left, the large mountain you see is Crevice Mountain. So it's, it's highly visible from Gardner and from much of the northern part of Yellowstone. If you're hiking across the Blacktail Trail, you're looking squarely up at Crevice Mountain and where this mining would take place, you know, <laughs> from inside the park. So it's, you know, it's very visible. Um, you know, it's, it's in a place that would really impact wildlife habitat and potentially water quality. And then all of the attendant things that come with mining, you know, the blasting and the lights and the heavy equipment and, um, you know, coming down through Gardner in the Paradise Valley 24-7, it's just, it's an, you know, a really, it's an impact far beyond, in my mind, what the actual footprint is. Do you know what type of um, mine operation they were proposing, I mean, to extract the, the gold from the ore? Yeah, I, I think uh, initially, I think they were planning, uh, you know, an added, so a tunnel system, um, you know, and then depending on what they find and how, how they determine, you know, to access the resource that that could change over time, but I think initially it was a tunnel system. But I'm wondering, um, don't some operations use cyanide to extract the gold from the ore? They do, yeah. So in Montana, there was a ballot initiative passed so oh, 20 plus years ago now that banned cyanide heat leach processing. Um, and so that's off the table, fortunately, um, here in Montana. But, you know, of course, there's uh, even setting that aside, you know, that we're fighting a mine right now in the Centennial Range in eastern Idaho. And um, that's the, they are proposing a full open pit and cyanide heat leach processing on site. And so, you know, that, of course, that has a terrible track record of, uh, water pollution and just utter devastation to the environment. Um, fortunately, that's not viable for them here in Montana. But, you know, that all of the processing and trucking and refining and everything that would take place in, in terms of dump sites and tailing ponds and all of those sorts of things are, are still very much part of it. There's a, a section of claims that that the company has staked and that are part of this whole deal that are set aside specifically for overburdened storage and tailing storage. We're talking today with Scott Christensen, the executive director of the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, about his organization's efforts to raise six and a quarter million dollars to halt plans to sink a gold mine into Crevice Mountain that rises over Yellowstone National Park's north entrance. We'll be back in a minute with Scott. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. 
The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. larger play and the company there was you know was farther along in the process so they had large you know fully fledged mining plans and a lot of exploration that had been done and they had invested much more and were farther along in the process and then the size was just bigger but aside from those two things it's you know fairly similar so it's you know kind of the same approach to mining gold was the you know, the primary mineral that they were after, you know, similar type of geology and habitat and all those sorts of things, you know, and of close, of course, close proximity to the northern boundary of the park. So there there are some similarities there, but, you know, they were, Crown Butte was farther along and had a larger, you know, proposal than, than this one. And so, um, but otherwise, you know, quite quite similar. You know, the the geology in that northern part of the park and it it it's highly mineralized and it, there are known resources throughout there and if you look back in time, you know, there's a reason that, you know, even prior to the park being established, you know, there were huge communities of miners living you know, living up around Cook City in Jardine in Immigrant Gulch, um in these places that were like a magnet towards, you know, for, for white settlers um, who were hoping to, you know, strike it rich. And so, you know, the, the resources are there. They're not trivial accessing them, of course, but, you know, the geology is very conducive to minerals here in this region. I guess acid mine drainage was one of the concerns there as well, wasn't it? Huge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And in fact, even like the historic mining that did take place, around Cook City, you know, it took decades and decades to clean up Soda Butte Creek. I mean, right. they were working on that project until a couple of years ago. And right. so, and that's, of course, a, acid mine drainage is a huge concern for us. And, you know, any the, the exposure of those minerals to water, you know, once you start digging, whether it's open pit or tunnel or, you know, overburden piles or whatever, just the exposure of those minerals to water creates an immediate problem. And historically, it has been one of the most challenging things for the industry to deal with. And so I just, I, I sort of approach mining uh, with the mindset that there will be acid mine drainage. The question just is how much and where and how will it all play out. Why wasn't um, Crevice Mountain included in the Yellowstone Gateway Protection Act? So it, it was included. 
that the legislation protected a little over 30,000 acres, half of that up at Immigrant Gulch and half of that on Crevice Mountain. But the, the issue with Crevice Mountain is that there is enough private land um, that's contiguous um, within the boundaries of the mineral withdrawal that, you know, there's over 300 acres in there that, um, that the company has leased or owns the mineral rights under that, um, you know, they can make a viable, they have a large enough footprint they can make a viable mine there. And so we knew that when the bill passed, if the company chose to move forward, we would have to find a way to address that. And, of course, they did keep moving ahead. And so, you know, and then, of course, leading up to the passage of the bill, the company went out and staked about a 1,000 acres worth of claims on public land before the uh, legislation passed. And so that's how they've constructed this almost 1,400-acre footprint. And so... The, that's the challenge, is that the legislation could only address the public lands, and here we have enough private lands in play on Crevice Mountain that mining is viable. One, the, you know, long-term, our goal, of course, is to, to ultimately uh, try to get these private lands into public ownership. There's a provision that we built into the Yellowstone Gateway Protection Act that states that any private lands that come into public ownership after the bill is passed are withdrawn from mineral entry. So the, the long-term play here is that, um, you know, by getting them into public ownership, they're forever protected from any future mining threats. How far is the mine site from the park boundary? There is some adjacency. So one of the parcels actually touches the northern boundary of the park. Um, and and then it goes uphill from there. So I, you know, I've told people that you can you can stand on one of these private parcels with one foot and have your other foot in Yellowstone National Park. And you know, if if you have a if you're a strong-armed outfielder, you can probably throw a baseball, you know, from from these properties, you know, down into the Yellowstone River. So it's it's right there on the boundary of the park. Now, looking at uh, your website, it looks like you've raised $3.9 million so far as of right now. That's right. Yep, we're just under $4 million. Are those all small individual donations, or did you have some larger support? Yeah, that's, it's a mix. So um, we have everything from, you know, $5 individual gifts up to, you know, gifts over a $1 million so far. So, um you know, we've had a great response from a lot of people who, um, you know, live or have property or an interest in that Paradise Valley Gardner Basin neighborhood. We've had full range of support from, you know, large foundations to small family foundations to individual donors. So it's a it's a broad mix, and I think as of the last day or two, and with the with the press coverage from last week. I believe we've seen donations come in from all 50 states, so um, a lot of support for it. Yeah. When did you start raising money? So we, we quietly started raising money about a year ago, and we needed to, you know, after signing the agreement with the company, we signed the, the agreement with the option to purchase agreement with the company in October of 2021, and that bought us 
two years to raise the money, and we needed to spend most of the first year just doing some due diligence to make sure that we could pull it off and, you know, fully inspect the mountain and the landscape, uh, the private lands involved, all of that. And so once we got through that and felt like, yeah, we, we, we want to take a shot at this, you know, we began quietly raising money, and we really needed to – we needed a quiet phase to – get far enough along that, you know, we felt confident that we could, we could do this. And, and we're at a stage now where, you know, we took it public last week and, and we, you know, we're asking anybody and everyone, the, the, you know, the public that, that cherishes Yellowstone just like we do to step up and help us get it across the finish line. I'm sure you will, but um, what if you don't? Do you have to give back that money? So we get there by hook or by crook. I'm, I'm determined to get there. Um, you know, if, if we're for some reason unable to, we'll have to have some conversations, of course, with people. Um, but, you know, I, I, I am bound and determined to get there. You know, failure is just not an option. The mining company has said, you know, if, if GYC fails to do this, then we will mine. And that just cannot happen on the boundary of Yellowstone. And right. so we will find a way to get there and close the deal. If you want to help the Greater Yellowstone Coalition reach its goal, you can donate at greateryellowstone.org slash Yellowstone mine. After a short break, we'll be back with Dave Halleck, superintendent of Cape Hatteras National Seashore, to talk about the Atlantic Ocean collapsing houses at the National Seashore and possible solutions to that dilemma. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. From Yellowstone National Park, we're now heading over to North Carolina's Outer Banks and Cape Hatteras National Seashore, where there's much concern over beach erosion that has been toppling homes at Rodanthe into the Atlantic Ocean. A report came out the other week about how to solve the dilemma of houses collapsing into the Atlantic Ocean. At least four homes have been claimed by the Atlantic at Rodanthe, and more are at risk of collapsing. When they do, they pollute the National Seashore with building debris and sewage from unearthed septic tanks. While some say beach nourishment, rebuilding the beachfront with sand dredged from elsewhere, is one solution, another proposal is to buy out the homeowners whose structures are at risk 
and move or demolish them before the ocean can. Rob Young, the director of the Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina University, looked into the cost of such a buyout program and came up with a dollar figure of $43 million. That compares to a $120 million figure associated with a beach renourishment program that would run for 15 years. That figure was mentioned in another recently released report conducted for Dare County, North Carolina. Dave Halleck, superintendent of Cape Hatteras National Seashore, says Young's report helps the ongoing discussion of how to address the problem. I think it's it, that, that it adds to the, to the discussion, you know, uh, particularly here at Cape Hatteras National Seashore. There are no easy solutions when it comes to, to the problem that we have. So, you know, when you're, in a, when you're in a difficult situation like this, that is likely to get worse, by the way, just as erosion continues and uh, as, as the earth changes, uh, you've got to think long term and you might as well put all the options on the table. So um, his work is certainly generating a lot of discussion. Uh, is there active discussion of, of beach nourishment? Oh yeah. So if you um, if you read that Brady Dennis report, or maybe even Rob's editorial on Coastal Review Online, he links to the beach nourishment study that Dare County did. And so basically, if you read his re- his report or his editorial, what he's done is he said, um, you know, I, I don't want to speak for him, but basically, here's the cost that I've determined to get whatever 15, 25, 30 years of of um, adaptation, if you will, through a buyout. And like you said, it was 80 houses and something like 43 million. And here's the cost that Dare County is saying uh, we, we would have to endure to do a one-time beach nourishment and then over a, you know, a, a longer period of time. So he, he throws those numbers out there. And he doesn't make any recommendations or conclusions, but you can see that the, the, the buyout is um, significantly less over the same time period than performing repeat beach nourishment projects. His numbers are good. I mean, I've talked to Rob in the past, and he always seems to be uh, on, on the mark. You know, you know I, I, can't, I can't comment on the, the details of it, but, it, I mean, in his report, he, he lays his methods right out, and that's all you can do. I'm not saying this is the case, but some would say, actually, that it's probably less than $43 million. Now, since the, the high tide is, is rising, I mean, wouldn't that require beach nourishment? In the National Seashore, are they, are they talking outside of the National Seashore to protect for their north, yeah, no, I guess? No. Well, there, there is no place outside the National Seashore. So basically, if you come to Cape Hatteras Seashore, we're 75 miles long. Right. And we start uh, in uh, right at the border of a village called Nags Head. And we, we, when I say we, I mean all Americans, of course, own the beach from there all the way to tip, the tip of Ocracoke Island, which is 75 miles. So... Rodanthe, which is, you know, I don't know, let's call it 15 miles, 20 miles south of our northern boundary, is uh, the, the front of Rodanthe, the eastern side of Rodanthe, is part of Cape Hatteras Seashore. So if you want to put a sand on the beach there, you're putting it in Cape Hatteras Seashore. So they would need the Park Service approval? Correct, yeah. Well, and the- so you may also recall that in 2021, we wrote a what was called the Sediment Management Plan, an environmental impact statement, and um, that plan described the conditions under which permits may be issued. Right. Um, it's actually a very detailed plan described. Monitoring requirements, grain size requirements, you know, seasonality, um, re- frequency of, of applications, all that kind of stuff. Now, aren't you on some um, board with uh, public officials to you know, discuss this problem? 
Um, I, I think what you're referring to is the North Carolina 12 Task Force. Um, yes, I have been a part of the task force, and that task force is, but it's not looking at, um, well, to back up a little bit, the problems, when we talk about a road, beachfront erosion, the problems uh, affect different things, right? So everything you're reading about in Rob Young's study is about affecting private property structures that, right. that are now you know, on the edge of the boundary, in the boundary, whatever. Um, the North Carolina 12 Task Force is actually looking at how erosion and storms and um, coastal stressors affect transportation, so specifically Highway 12, which is our main right. transportation corridor. Right. And we, f we focused on seven Highway 12 hotspots and tried to develop consensus recommendations for uh, you know what what might be good solutions in those areas and interestingly in this general area which is uh, just just north of Rodanthe we concluded in the report which is publicly available by the way that the transportation problem here had been mostly solved because a new bridge was just completed about a year ago and that bridge goes around the highway 12 hotspot um, and what we're seeing is the area just to the south of that is also being affected, but what's primarily being affected are the private homes on the beach. The highway's not affected because the highway's been moved uh, to a bridge. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Bonner Bridge, is it? No, so this is, um, the Bonner Bridge and the Basnight Bridge are north of here and they're on Oregon Inlet. The bridge I'm referring to is what has been, it doesn't actually have a name, but most people will either refer to it as the Jug Handle Bridge or the Rodanthe Bridge. Hmm. Has this task force taken up this issue of Beach nourishment or buyouts, or is it on the agenda down the well, road? Well, not buyouts, because again, we're not looking at homes or private properties. We're looking at transportation on Highway 12. That's it. Um, have we talked about beach nourishment as a tool in the toolbox to protect Highway 12? Absolutely. And if you read the report, you'll see um, in many cases, if I were to sum the report up, you know, very quickly, I would say we, as a interagency team, recommended bridges that remove the highway from the island and completely bypass the hotspots as the most sustainable long-term solutions. But we also identified that short-term, in the years leading up to that, that there may be a need for some, uh, you know, like surgically applied short-term beach nourishment projects just to protect the highway until a bridge could be built. So would this be like a, a monster Chesapeake Bay Bridge tunnel? <laughs> Uh, well, actually, so there's seven Highway 12 hotspots, and basically it would be a uh, a bridge uh, that would go around all of them. And, and and really, the recommendations of the report are mostly conceptual at this point, yeah. because we don't know, we don't know exactly how long the bridge has to be, or exactly where it starts or ends. But we did using other studies, feasibility studies that the Department of Transportation conducted, we did use um, you know some of that data to say you know generally we think the bridge is probably going to be about whatever two miles, three miles, seven miles long, and go out here and come into the village in approximately this location. But that was, you know, again, mostly conceptual. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. And please accept my personal thanks for making the Travelers Podcast series one of the most popular out there. This past week, we went past 600,000 downloads since the series started in February 2019. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. 
composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.